we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 16 and chapter 21. So if you'd turn there with me, that would be awesome. We've covered uh, a portion of chapter 16 um, already. I think I'll start there actually and, um, and just kind of finish out that passage. We didn't talk too much about Hagar. We didn't finish out the passage when we were preaching on it. We basically talked about uh, what had happened. God had made a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And uh, I'm, I'm going to provide, I mean, you're going to become a people. And so they begin to doubt. And Sarah basically says, Sarah I, his wife at that time, her name was Sarai at that time, says, you know, maybe God meant for us to kind of help him out a little bit and uh, meant for us to try to figure out this whole thing with having a baby because Sarai was barren. Uh, she was struggling with infertility. We don't use that term uh, very much anymore, barren, because it sounds kind of rough, but that's what the Scripture says. And so she was dealing with infertility. She couldn't have children. God had promised them a child, and she says, well, since I can't have kids, why don't you take my handmaiden, Hagar? And, and really, Hagar is a slave, um, and so why don't you take my slave uh, as a wife, kind of as a secondary wife, uh, why don't you sleep with her, and then maybe I'm supposed to get children through Hagar. And so that happens, and the, the whole thing begins to unravel. And if you were to pick it up in verse uh, 7, if I can find it here. I'm going to have to get glasses soon here. Uh, there, there we go. Ver, actually, I'll, I'll go to verse 6. But, Abraham, but Abram, his name was Abram at that time. So between uh, then and now, chapter 21, where we're going to be, uh, his name was changed by God to Abraham, and Sarai's name was changed to Sarah, in case you haven't been with us. But it says, and, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the, the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. But the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Speaking of Ishmael, her son. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That's a nice prophecy. Huh? <laughs> really nice. Let's put that on a coffee cup and yeah, whatever. So uh, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer La Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, fast forward. Last few weeks of preaching. Uh, to chapter 21, where the story uh, gets picked up again. So 
basically, they have this, this son, Ishmael, and he's been, he's been there for a while. Abram was 86. When he has the son, he's 100 now. And he finally has his son that he is supposed to have through the promise of God. So chapter 21, verse 1 says this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, the slave, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. The word laughing could be more like mocking. He's mocking, mocking the new son. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of this son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And we'll stop there. Now, uh, this story is uh, somewhat complicated, but let me just kind of uh, just break it down, or not really break it down, just kind of centralize the theme here, which is God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He promised Abraham, this is what's going to happen. And even though Abraham thought, I need to help God out, God still fulfilled his promises with Abraham and Sarah. So God fulfills his promises. But then you see in the life of Hagar how God is treating her as well. The first thing that we should talk about is this, is that, Sarah, or that Hagar is actually a slave. She's a slave. And when we look at this and we see what's happening here, one of the things that we can see is we can say, uh, this seems problematic 
Because God goes to a slave and says, hey, go back to your master, and not just go back, but submit to her. Because what had been happening was that Sarah had dealt harshly with Hagar. And those words in Hebrew, some people suggest, is it's not just that she dealt harshly with her, but that she was physically abusive towards Hagar. So uh, Hagar is a slave who's abused. She's oppressed. And you can look at this and you can say, how can these people be such heroes of the faith, such as Abraham and Sarah? How could these people be such uh, heroes of the faith, and yet here they are as slaveholders? Here they are as, as people who are mistreating their, their slaves? And then you see Abraham sending out Hagar and, and saying, all right, I guess this is it. Time, time to head out into the wilderness so that you can die. You can look at this and you can say, man, how could I even come close to following this God? Well, the, the problem comes with this, is our understanding of what the Bible actually is. Tim Keller has a great sermon on this, but he really talks about the idea that when we look at the Scriptures, when we come to the Scriptures with our own understanding of what they mean and what they are for, that sometimes can skew our view of what they actually are. Many of us come to the Scriptures and we think that what they are all about is that this is the way to God. These are the heroes of the faith, and if we would just learn from them. In fact, many of us, as if you grew up in the church at all, uh, for me as a kid, we used to have a flannel graph, and, and uh, it was basically like felt and flannel, and you would stick these figures on there, and so had these heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Sarah and David and Gideon and all these people. But so many of these people, as we talked about last week, are not really heroes of the faith, but people that God has saved in spite of their horrid lives, even though they had done some good things. So we can come to the scriptures, and even in our churches, we have misconstrued what the scriptures actually are. The scriptures are not showing us a bunch of moral people, and if we would just bend our will to God's, and if we would just become more moral like these people, then we can be like God and we can go to heaven. That's not what it is. It's actually showing us all of these people, all of humanity, and how humanity has a consistent problem. And the consistent problem is this, is that we are all wretched sinners. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, because of Adam and Eve's sins, uh, Adam and Eve's sin, all of us have become sinful. All of us have been uh, dealt that hand, if you will. You look at the life of Noah, and you look at all of these other people, it just God, God creates a restart, and then all of a sudden it breaks down. God creates a restart, and then it breaks down. What we see is we consistently see how humanity continually screws things up, and God continues to keep his promises. God continues to work through these situations. So what this passage is actually showing us is not... What the Bible actually shows us is not actually how to live like these heroes of the faith because then we would look at this and we would say, I don't want to be anything like Sarah. I don't want to own slaves. I don't want to mistreat people. I don't want to not trust God in this way. What it is showing us is that it is showing us two ways of salvation. Two ways of salvation. It is, uh, one is man's effort to get to God, and the other one is God's decision to save some men. 
One way is, is how we try to get to God. We try to, get at, we try to find Him. We try to get to Him. And yet, we cannot seem to get to Him. We continue to go after Him. We continue to go after Him. We continue to go after Him. Or we choose God replacements. So we can either try to get to God through religion by being really good and trying to emulate these heroes by not looking at the negative parts of their life, emulate these heroes, and then if I just do enough good, then I can be with God. That would be in the flesh. It is my effort to try to get to God. And we see that in the life of Abraham and Sarah. When they had the promise of God, they had the call of God on their life. And yet what they did was they said, maybe we need to help God out a little bit. Maybe we need to live life in the flesh. Maybe God really intended us to just do this. And in fact, the New Testament and Galatians chapter 4 really speaks to this. It really talks about this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. It's talking about uh, Hagar and Sarah and their two sons. So you have Ishmael and you have Isaac. Ishmael, the son of the flesh, that's man's effort to accomplish the will of God. And then you have Isaac, who is the son of an impossibility because Sarah could not have kids. So you have these two sons, but the son of the, uh, of the slave wa was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 4, uh, 24, the next verse. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Let me t tell you what, what, what that means here. Paul is looking back at the story that we're reading here out of chapter uh, 16 and then 21. And Paul says, you can look back at that story, and it speaks to something in our everyday life right here and right now. It can be interpreted as a story. It's an allegory of what is to take place. I believe it actually took place, but allegorically, you can look at our life, and you can impose that on us. It may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. There are two ways to get to God, two covenants. He says, one is from Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai with God's people, Israel? The Ten Commandments were given. One is a covenant of works. It is this covenant that says, here's the rules, keep the rules, that kind of thing. One is from Mount Sinai. That's in the flesh, bearing children for slavery. The Apostle Paul says, as long as you're trying to accomplish God's will in your flesh the way that Abraham and Sarah did by using their slave girl to fulfill the promise that God had for them. As long as you're trying to do it on your own, as long as you're trying to do it in your flesh, your host. He says this, one is from Mount Sinai. This is in the flesh. She is uh, bearing si uh, children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Kind of cryptic language there. But what it's saying is this, is that that story should speak to us about our everyday lives in this way. Am I trying to get, get to God 
or trying to find a God replacement in the flesh, or am I believing the promises of God even in the midst of the impossibility of it all? Am I trying to work this out myself? Am I trying to make it happen according to me and my abilities? Or am I dependent upon the Lord? So the ways that we do this are pretty simple, really. You can either be really, really good or you can be really, really bad. One way or another, both of those are the same thing. It's trying to either get God or get a God replacement in the flesh. It's trying to get God by putting Him in, uh, by, by making God owe you, putting God in your debt. It's trying to make God owe you so that, hey, God, I've done all these things for you. Shouldn't you be giving to me? Some of you came to church this morning believing that I just need to go to church so that I can put God in my debt. You didn't think those words. You just thought, as long as I give to God, as long as I show an effort, I think he's loving enough that he would just begin to bless me. But God said, my blessing is coming through only my will, through no participation by you. It doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility towards righteousness. We're talking about salvation in the first place. But God says, you cannot fulfill this on your own. You can never, ever, ever put God in your debt. And as long as you continue to find, try to find a God replacement, you will end up destitute. You will end up lacking. You'll never be able to fill that. As long as you're trying to find full meaning and satisfaction, we will call it salvation because so many of us are looking for salvation in so many other places other than God. Our world today tells you that you can find an identity in your sexuality. The biggest lie that our world is telling you right now is that your identity is rooted in sex. Your identity is rooted in who you uh, determine that you would like to have sex with, who you're drawn to. Our world says that it's in the flesh. You can achieve everything that you've ever wanted, real meaning in life, by living in the flesh. You can find a real identity. You can find salvation by either trying to be really, really good or really, really bad by trying to do those things. But God has another plan, and that's what God is laying out for us. So there's two ways of salvation. God only saves unilaterally. He does not save in conjunction with our efforts. He does not save in conjunction. We don't help God in his ability to save us. God saves us, and then we respond through righteous actions, and we grow in that. But we do not help God save us. God saves us 
unilaterally. He will not allow us to do it on our own. He will not allow us to cause it to happen in our lives. He's not going to allow you to do that. And in fact, God is so incredibly gracious when he shows us through pain and suffering how we have been trying to save ourselves, how we have been trying to fulfill this ultimate aim of salvation in whatever way, you know, through religion or through self-discovery, as Tim Keller says. One of those ways. God will not allow us to do that if we are his. And so, let me just go through some points with you that I think are, are really, really incredible here. So, Sarah and Abraham, what we learn from them is that when we try to help God, it often hurts. When we try to help God with salvation, it often hurts because God saves unilaterally without our help. But when we try to help God, when we try to maybe give a little bit of effort, it often hurts. So the first thing is this. When we get involved with helping God save us or accomplish His purposes, it often goes poorly. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. It says, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And then Abraham, or Abraham and Abram listens to Sarah. He listens to the voice. What's he doing? He's just doing the same exact thing that Adam did. Not that listening to the voice of your wife is the wrong thing. It means going outside of God's will is what he did that was wrong. He got involved with trying to help God. And what ended up happening is that it ends up unraveling. And he finally says, she's your servant. Do with her as you will. Do, do what you want to do. And so what does she do? She mistreats her. The second thing is this. When we get to this point where we, where we say, okay, uh, here's how I can ultimately find satisfaction. It is through this thing. It's through my morality. It's through my self-discovery. It's through money, sex, power, whatever, my God replacements, whatever it is. What, what ultimately ends up happening is that when we, we end up using people, we end up using people to achieve the calling of God in our lives as we see it, and then as a result, what we end up doing is we end up treating those people harshly. What was Sarah doing? Sarah's biggest thing in her life was that she had shame because she didn't have a child. We've talked about shamed a lot in this sermon series. But Sarah, in her culture in that time, the value that they had was not in this individualistic autonomous self that goes and just uh, makes something of themselves. It was all within the context of the family. God calls them out of Ur, away from their family. He takes them into the middle of the desert and they are by themselves. They're away from family for the most part. They're away from family. And so what Sarah's got to be thinking is that the number one thing in my culture, the number one thing that I want the most of is the fact that I want children. I want children. And so what does she do? She ends up using Hagar. She uses this slave girl to accomplish her means. 
that we've got a creative family. Listen, it's no different for you and I. When I go somewhere with my children and they act like the, the devil or Charles Manson or something like that in, you know, in, in public, I'm extremely angry sometimes. I, I especially used to be this way. But I can get extremely angry. And it's because I have seen as the value in my life that obedient children would reflect really well on me. That's, that would go well for me. Do you, do you see the similarity there? Matt believes that obedient children would be the greatest thing in the world. And so when my children do not fulfill my desires to have obedient children and the way that that reflects on me, oh, Pastor Matt, you're such an amazing pastor. You have incredible kids and they're, they're fantastic and, and whatever. But instead they, you know, they act like Charles Manson, as I said. When that takes place, now I am angry with them. What happened? I made a covenant which said this. Children, as long as you fulfill my fleshly desires to be the greatest man in the world or whatever, as long as you do that, then I'll love you. It was contingent on, on if you do this for me, then I will love you. That's not gospel at all. That's not gospel at all. When we try to get God or the stuff of God, or we try to be God ourselves, we end up using the people around us. Sarah used Hagar. Abraham used Hagar. And when that didn't work out, she was mistreated. Why do we mistreat the people around us oftentimes? It's because they did not fulfill our desires to either be God or to be loved by God. And so they mistreat her. It says, uh, and in fact, the, the next thing, the number three thing under Sarah and Abraham is this. Sometimes God calls us to let go so that we can see that it is him, that it, I'm sorry, it is all him and none of us. If you look at uh, verse 10 of chapter 21. It says, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So Sarah says, I hate this kid. I don't want him getting an inheritance in our family. If you saw in the prophecy over Ishmael, Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against his kinsmen, over and against all of his kinsmen. That's being fulfilled. As Ishmael mocks his little half-brother, Isaac. Ishmael is about 16 years old, but Sarah sees this. She says, I'm having none of that. But here we have this son, Ishmael, who really is, he represents their efforts to fulfill God's promises on their own and what ends up taking place. Sarah says, kick them out, kick them out. I don't want them anywhere near here. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 21, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
So God comes to Abraham and says, I know that this is tearing you up. Now remember, Abraham hasn't had a kid. He hasn't had a son. And Ishmael is his firstborn son with Hagar. He's not the child of promise, but he is his firstborn son. Now I remember the day that I was sitting in the, uh, whatever, the hospital or wherever it was doing this. not a sonogram. It's an ultrasound. There we go. Ultrasound. And I, I remember saying to my wife prior to this, like, I don't care if it's a girl or a boy. It's fine either way. I'm fine with whatever. But I sat there, and the doctor or technician came in at that point, and she starts doing the uh, ultrasound. And I instantly came to this conclusion, oh, Lord, if it's a son. I'm going to be so excited. We're going to watch Gladiator together. We're going to kill things, and it's going to be bloody. And ah, it's going to be. And it, like all of these things went through my head as I was like sitting there, and I was like, oh, no, if it's a, if it's a girl, what am I going to do? And uh, I love my girls, by the way. I have two, two girls but I was so happy. And I, I can't imagine what Abraham felt like when he had his first son. Even though he's not the child of promise, he has this first son. And this son has been growing up with him. He's about 15 at this point. And then Sarah says, hey, kick him out. God says, obey Sarah because I have got a promise for him. I've got a promise. Don't, don't worry about him. I've got it covered. And what is God doing right here? I believe God is doing something. See, sometimes God calls us to let go of the very thing that we have been trying to use to get God or to get a God replacement. God sometimes calls us to let go of something that we have been trying to use that, that has been all along the thing that we've been trying to get to God with. And for Abraham, it was this whole incident with Hagar. Now, it sounds awful. I hope no one in this room or ever listening to this would ever use this as a reason to say, that's right, I need to walk away from my kids. That's horrific and sinful. And the only time that I would ever say that you should do that is if your name is Abraham and you're in the Old Testament. Other than that, don't ever do this. This is not prescriptive, it's descriptive of what took place. But God is asking him and he's asking us to see something. And that is when your salvation, when your life, when everything that matters to you is wrapped in someone or something, when it's wrapped up in your sexuality, when it's wrapped up in the job that you have, when it's wrapped up in all of those things, God somehow, in some way, is asking you and I to say, let it go into my hands so that I can do with it what really needs to happen. And an amazing thing takes place is that when I release to God what was never mine in the first place, such as my children and the way that they act, when I release to God and I say, God, it is in your hands, not that I don't take responsibility for raising my children, but God, it is in your hands. Like, the prestige that I get from my children being obedient, that, that is not my God. You are my God. You are my king. When I release that to God and I say, okay, I'm going to leave it to you to show me and to speak to me, 
and to strip this away. And this is what God does in these situations is he is stripping away the things that we think that we need until we come to a point where all we have is God. See, God will take everything away from you. If you are truly his, if he is calling you, he'll take away everything, everything that stands in the way between you and him. God will take it away so that you can find the greatest thing that ever was, which is relationship with him. See, people get angry that God took something from them and they walk away from God oftentimes when really what they should be doing is going the opposite direction, walking toward God. God is saying, let's get this crap out of the way. Let's get this out of the way. Let's get this out of the way so that you have a direct path to me. That's what God is speaking to you. He'll remove everything until all you have is him. But the other thing that this shows us is Romans chapter 9 speaks to this as well. And Romans chapter 9 is really asserting this. In fact, let me read it for you. Romans 9, 6 through 9, it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why does it say that? Because some people from Israel come to Jesus and some do not. And so Paul is explaining this. He's saying, how come some of them don't come to Jesus who is God in the flesh? How come some of them don't? And he says, it's not that the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's saying that, that not everybody who's born from Abraham is a child of promise. It's only the one that God chose. It's Isaac. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's not the people. It's not the child Ishmael that was made in the effort of man it's not that child that gets chosen. It is only the child that comes through miraculous intervention by God in Sarah's life. But the children of the promise are counted as, as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. What's that saying? It's saying this, that God will take out everything out of the way so that at the end of the day, the only thing that you can see is this, is that I didn't get to God on my own. I didn't get to God on my own. For Abraham, it was this. I didn't get the child of promise on my own. I didn't make it happen. I didn't help God in any way. And God wants you to know the very same thing about your salvation. You did not help him. He did it alone. You must know that. Let's go on to Hagar. Desperation often precedes salvation. Desperation often precedes salvation. The first thing is this, and this is perhaps a side note. Sometimes God calls us back into a difficult situation. Sometimes God says, I know that that's a horrific situation, but I want you to go back. I want you to go back. Now, you better be hearing from God if you're hearing that. 
Let me tell you who this doesn't apply to. And my firm belief is this. It does not apply to abused women. If you've been abused by your husband, you should call the police. And then secondly, you should call me so that we can confront your husband. But you should call the police first so that he can go to jail, so that he can be prosecuted for mistreating you. That's despicable. It does not apply to that. But sometimes God calls us to go back into a difficult situation. I wouldn't suggest that. I wanted to be clear on this. Sometimes God says, I want you to stay. I know you feel like running, but I want you to stay. Sometimes God says, I know that this marriage is difficult, but I want you to stay because my blessing is coming through. Even that difficulty. Even that. Now why? Why? Because at the end of the day, God wants you to see that you didn't do it on your own, that he did it. Sometimes he just wants to perform a miracle, such as taking a slave girl who was bought in Egypt and bringing her through all of this stuff who's oppressed and abused and ultimately making her and her son into a great nation. Sometimes God wants to show how incredible he is even in through the most horrific situations. So God may be saying to you that sometimes you need to stay. There may be times for you to stay. And you should talk to solid Christian believers that speak to you. Once you feel like you've heard from God, check that out with other believers, especially as it pertains uh, to marriage and things like that. We want to be sure that we speak into this. The second thing is this. When we are destitute, God sees us. God sees us in the midst of our oppression. God sees us in the midst of the difficulties that are going on. Chapter 16, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. See, this, she's in the midst of this desperate situation. She's run away from Hagar because Hagar's been mistreating her or abusing her or hitting her or whatever it is. And she goes out. She's going to die in the middle of the desert by herself. And God comes to her, a slave girl. God sees the oppressed. God sees the people that are uh, enduring major difficulty. Do you feel like God doesn't see you? God sees you. God sees where you are are right here and right now in the midst of your desperation when you say, I don't feel like he sees me. I don't feel like he hears me. God sees you. God sees you. When we cry, he hears us, is the third thing from Hagar. When we cry, he hears us. It says in chapter 21, verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. God hears what's going on. Here's Hagar. She's in the desert. She's in the middle of nowhere. They've run out of water. They've run out of food. And God hears the voice of the boy as he lays there dying. God hears the thing that Hagar cares about the most. She's sitting there crying. She's a long ways away from him. And she's just like, I can't even bear to hear the sound of my son dying. But God hears it. Even when you can't hear it. God hears it. God knows what's going on. He hasn't left you there. 
The fourth thing, when we cannot see, God opens our eyes. When we cannot see, God opens our eyes. God speaks to her, and then he says this in verse 18. He says, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God comes to her, and she's in the midst of desperation. I am going to die. My son is going to die. God comes to her, and he says, up. Up, lift up the boy. I'm going to make him into a great nation. He gives him a promise. He affirms a promise that he's already given him. Do you know that it takes for you and I to become so desperate? We have to become so desperate before we can experience salvation because desperation precedes salvation. She's in this place when she says, I'm as good as dead. Do you know this? You're not just kind of a good person, and so you decided, hey, I'm going to start going to church, and I'll, and I'll start being kind of a moral person. That's being in the flesh. That's in the flesh. That's saying, I'm going to save myself. What God says is this, is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and Hagar is here as good as dead. Death was there in the midst of the desert. He says, up, lift up the boy, hold him fast. I'm going to make him into a great nation. God speaks salvation to them. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Do you know what has to happen in order for you to be able to experience God? In order for you to be able to have relationship with him, he has to open your eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He opens your eyes. That's what he does for Hagar. Do you think you're in a desperate situation? Good. Do you think everything's falling apart? Good. Because God's got you right where he wants you. Now you might say, Matt, you don't know the things that I'm going on. Listen, I grieve with you. I grieve with you over the things that are happening in your life. I, you're right, I have no idea. But God sees you, God hears you, God knows you, and he says, up, lift up the boy. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I am going to save you, and he's going to open your eyes to his truth. He will open your eyes. And what does he open their eyes to? He opens their eyes to a well. And who is Jesus? He's the living water. Who's he talked to about that? Remember the woman at the well? John 4.10, he says to the woman at the well, who's had multiple husbands, relationship was her God, or sex was her God, or whatever, but she was a used and abused woman, and she just keeps searching. She's just going after man, after man, after man. There's nothing that's filling her. And Jesus says, you know what you need? You need a spiritual drink of water. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, you're thirsty. I see it in your life. I see, I see what's going on. But the woman at the well can't even see who Jesus is. He says, if you knew. And here Jesus is. He's revealing himself to her, and he's revealing himself to you today. He's revealing himself in this, and he's saying, stop going after all of this other drink. 
Stop going after all of these things. Let me open your eyes to see the living water. Who is Jesus Christ? And why is Jesus living water? Jesus is living water because of this. All of your efforts to save yourself, all of your efforts to feel normal, all of your and my efforts to try to be more moral, more moral, so that God will accept us, really just mean this, squat. They don't mean anything. They don't get us closer to God. They don't draw us near to Him. They're really taking us further and further and further away as we sin and sin some more. And as we think, God, I don't need you. Thank you very much. I'm like a very moral person. And so I don't really need to have a relationship with you. It's just sin upon sin upon sin. But Jesus came. And really, Isaac is the first nativity. He's kind of the precursor to Jesus in that sense. He comes miraculously. But Jesus comes. And he comes miraculously in a very similar way to Isaac. Lives a perfect life, and yet he's tempted all along the way. And then he goes to the cross. And what does he do? He hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Jesus is already forgiven you before you even asked for it. And here we are. And maybe you're in this moment of absolute desperation because you have screwed up your life like Abraham and Sarah. Or maybe you're just so desperate because of what other people have done to you like Hagar. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. He wants to open up your eyes so that you can see who he is. And the last thing it says in this passage is that he is with the boy. It says in Matthew 28 at the very end of the Great Commission, it says, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God's promise is not for you to go off on your own and do your own thing, but he's been involved in your life all along. And he wants to open up your eyes to who he is so that you can see all of your moral efforts in the flesh, so that, he, so that you can see all of your sinful efforts in the flesh to achieve salvation. He wants to open your eyes so that you can see the level of death that's going on in your life, so that you can see even your blindness and that he wants to save you by having gone to the cross and he paid on that cross for your sins. He wipes them out. And the only thing that you must do is believe. That is, put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Not just once, but as a regular expression of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? You can only be a disciple if Jesus has unilaterally saved you, that he has called you to himself by his own will, by his own power, through no help by you. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, this puts us in a position where if we are truly saved, when we think about the fact that you unilaterally save us, that we don't do this on our own, it puts us in a, in a position of being completely, completely appreciative, completely in your debt, because you gave us everything and when we had nothing. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm praying that you would cause us to be people who realize the depth of our desperation and how you've saved us. And God, that you would transform our hearts, transform our souls, transform our minds, that you'd open our eyes so that we can see. So Lord, I think there's people in this room that have never began a relationship with you. That maybe they think that they have because they said that they like God, but they've never, they've never actually submitted themselves to you. And so, Lord, I'm praying that, that these people in this room today would give their life to you, that they'd recognize that, Jesus, you are the living water, that you're the only one that can save, and, Lord, that they would place faith in you, and, Lord, that they would tell someone this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.